Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have as always to gather together, but particularly in this time of year as we are so close to Easter and we're celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. God, I just pray that we would be reminded by your spirit, just the, not just the truth that this event happened, but God, we would live in light of that truth, that what happened in the past would have a present day effect on us, that we would know that you died in our place for our sins, but not just that, you rose again, and in your name now we can have life, and that's the whole purpose of the gospel of John, that we might believe and in believing have life in his name. And so we open up your word today, God. We're so grateful for this word that John wrote down for us to believe. And as we read it today, God, I pray that you would speak to us, open our eyes to see the truth that is in it. Help us, help me to communicate this in a way that honors you and is helpful to us. God, we thank you for this word. And God, we pray that it would have its intended effect as you said you sent it forth to do. So bring forth now by your spirit the reality of what we're going to read. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you got a Bible, we're in John chapter 19. In fact, today we're going to wrap up John chapter 19 because as you're going to see, this is in the end part of John 19 where Jesus dies, where Jesus, he's crucified and we're going to see his death. And it's important that we look at this. In fact, we've been taking time. I've said this over the last couple months, we've just been taking this march towards the cross, and so we're going to finish John 19 this week, and there's kind of a cliffhanger, right? This is kind of a to-be-continued moment. If you, uh, you know, watch TV and those kind of things, those, it's that moment where you're like, oh, what is next? And so we're intentionally finishing John 19 this week and seeing the death and burial of Jesus, and then on Easter, we'll look in John chapter 20 at the resurrection, of Jesus. And so we're closing this out this week. And as we've seen all the way through this, there are deep theological meanings, particularly in the gospel of John. He will point out things that the other gospel, gospel writers just don't. And, and we try to bring all that together to give us a fuller picture. And sometimes people like to point out, well, that, this guy said it like this, this guy said it like that. Well, both of them are saying these things happen, but they're giving you different perspectives. And the reason why they're giving you that perspective is because they're trying to prove a point. And John particularly tells us, as I've told you many times, in John chapter 20, he's saying this so that we might believe, not only that these things happen, but that Jesus was really God, he was really man, he really died, he really rose again, and he wants you to believe that because if you believe it, you have life in his name. Let's just go John chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 28, and we'll work our way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 42. So here we go. It says, after this, after everything that just happened, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a, a sponge full on the, of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So this is the moment where Jesus takes his last breath. Now, there's many things that Jesus said on the cross. In fact, I believe there's seven different statements that Jesus said, and John doesn't point out all of them, and none of the gospel writers point out all of them, but this is the last one. And John points this out, and this phrase, in fact, this three-word phrase, it is finished, is actually one word in Greek, and it only occurs twice in the entire New Testament, and both are right here in John. And this word, the, the Greek word tetelestai, for it is finished, has huge meaning. It was a word that wasn't just used to talk about 
Jesus and what he did. It was, it was kind of a common word. In fact, I want to give you the definition of it if you're following along. I've got it here on the screen. This phrase, it is finished, in Greek is tetelestai, which means to be fully accomplished or completed or fulfilled. In fact, it's a word that a servant would use when a master gave the servant or the boss gave the employee or the parent gave the, parent, uh, the child, sometimes the parent gave the parent too, but the parent gave the child a task to do, the servant or the person that was given the task would say back to Telestai. And what it means is I have completed the work assigned to me. Speaking of parents and children, all the parents in the house, wouldn't we just love it if our kids learned this word? I have completed it, right? Like you type A people, you got to-do list. Now you can have a biblical word. You can be like, to tell us die, to tell us die, to tell us die, right? I completed it. I did it. But this word, again, it only occurs twice in the New Testament, only right here in John. And John uses this word, or Jesus uses this word. John points out that Jesus uses this word because it has, again, huge meaning. Jesus has said many times, in fact, John has highlighted that Jesus said, he came to do his father's will. Jesus came to do his father's will. And this word here, to tetelestai, comes from a The root word telos in Greek, which means to have a goal, something you want to do. Like every new year, a lot of us, we have goals. And if you have a telos, that means you have a goal, you have a purpose, there's something that you're going after. And it's good in life to have a telos, to have a goal. And you might recognize this word telos, it's the same root word that we use for telescope, or even television. It's the same word. And the idea of telos is there's something in the future, there's, there's something that's distant that you're bringing, like the idea of a, a telescope is something in the future or distant that you're bringing close. And, and the idea is by bringing it close, like you're bringing it together between where you are now and where you want to be which is interesting to me that they chose the word, and I don't know why they chose the word, but I'm assuming they chose the word television because it's like bringing things that are distant into your home, right? It's bringing things that are out there into here. And maybe one of the reasons why a lot of us don't have a telos or don't have a goal is because we watch too much television, right? Like this is what makes me laugh a lot of times today. It's not just TVs, it's video games, like I'll watch PS or PlayStation commercials or you know Xbox commercials, and they talk about all this greatness, right? Like conquering all these worlds. I'm like, bro, all that's fake. And I'm not saying it's sinful or wrong to play video games. I'm just saying if all you're doing in life is accomplishing things in digital spaces, then you don't have much of a telos. You're not really accomplishing much. Because having a telos means you have a purpose. You, you have a work to do. Now, if playing in digital spaces is your job, okay, I understand that. So you don't have to send me an email. So actually, I get paid to do this. Okay. But my point is, I want you to see, Jesus was born for a purpose. He was born for a telos, for a goal. He had a purpose in his life, and he told us, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So now we're at the point of Jesus's life where he is saying, check, I've completed it. I've done it. I have done the thing for which I was born. I have completed my purpose. Paul later says, I've finished the course, right? It's like a five-course meal. I finished it. I ran my my race. I completed it. And all of us hopefully want to live a life in such a way where we meet God one day and he says, well done, right? Good and faithful servant. 
to where we can stand before him one day and say, God, to tell us that I, I completed it. I finished it. I did what you called me and gifted me to do. But Jesus here doesn't just have a normal telos or a normal goal or a normal purpose in the sense like all of us have. His is greater. His is, let me say it like this, his is unique, which you understand you don't have to say very unique. Unique means unique. You don't have to put anything else. It means it's different. So Jesus has a unique telos. He has a unique purpose. Let me say it like this. Jesus has a purpose for which no other human being could have had as their goal. He was different. So he accomplished something that no other human being could accomplish. Namely being, he obeyed the law perfectly. There was no sin in him. See, I don't think a lot of times we think, we just think of Jesus's completion as his act on the cross. No, Jesus's completion was every single day of his life he obeyed. It wasn't just one act at the end, it was 33 years of acts. It was 33 years of faithfulness. It was 33 years of tetelestai. I did it today, I did it today, I did it today, I did it today. And it culminates at the end of his life where he says, now it's all finished. It's all done. And the reason why this is so important is because this one word in Greek translates into English three words, it is finished, has huge theological implications for us. In fact, I want to read a quote to you. I have it here on the screen. I'm going to quote two different guys with the name Charles today. One of them, uh, or both of them are British or were British uh, preachers. One is a little bit more well-known than the other one. But here's the first one, a guy by the name of Charles Simeon. Here's what he said about this word. Since the foundation of the world, there never was a single word uttered in which such diversified and important matter was contained. Every word that proceeded from our Savior's lips deserves the most attentive consideration, but tetelestai eclipses all. To do justice to it is beyond the ability of men or angels. Its height and depth and length and breadth are absolutely unsearchable. And here I am trying to explain it to you in one sermon. To tell us that it's finished. The whole of the law finished in one person. And I've tried to show you, again, as we've gone through John, what I think John's trying to show you, who Jesus is and what Jesus did. In fact, I love John, how he says in John chapter 21, these things were written so that you might believe. Then he says, but there was a lot more that was written. There's a lot more that was written. He says, and I suppose all the books in the world couldn't contain them. This is why I want you to know heaven's not gonna be boring because we're gonna learn about all the other things he did. We're gonna learn about the implications of everything that he did. He's going to teach us for all eternity about the meaning of this word. And so this word, tetelestai, means everything that needed to be done in order for you and I to be saved is done. It's finished. It's completed. Jesus completed the work. It's finished. And so if you're looking for one word to describe the essence of what the cross is about, it's tetelestai. It's completed. It's fulfilled. And in fact, the Latin equivalent to this word is a word that we use in English. It is where we get our English word consummated. And in Latin, I think this is how you say it, consummatum. Like we speak of something that's consummated means it was brought to its end. It was completed. 
And so this concept that Jesus completed, checked off, did everything that needed to be done in order for us to be saved is this word. And again, I'm gonna do my best, like I said, to try and explain it to you. And what's even more amazing is not just that this word means it was completed. Jesus actually, or John says it twice. Jesus only says it once. But John is using this word in such a way where it almost has a double meaning. He's saying Jesus said it because Jesus did it. Well, how did Jesus do it? He fulfilled everything that scripture said had to be fulfilled. And again, that's what's the most amazing thing about Jesus. And I've said this a couple times now. There's all these prophecies about the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled them all. And the statistical chance of that happening in one person is like one to the quadrillionth power. It's like a statistical anomaly. It is virtually impossible for somebody to do. But up until the very end, Jesus knows it's all finished. But there's one thing he's got to say, I thirst. Because even the prophets prophesied that he would be thirsty. Comes out of Psalm 22, Psalm 69. There's all these prophecies about this. He would be parched. His, I, love, I think it's either Psalm 60, uh, 22 or Psalm 69. It says, it's like the roof would be stuck to the top of his mouth. So Jesus says, I thirst. And here's what's crazy. Then, unbeknownst to them, they got some sour wine. They got some redneck wine, right? They got some Boone's Farm sitting over there. And they get a hyssop branch with a sponge, and they stick it in there, and then they raise it up, not knowing that hyssop itself has huge theological meaning. If you go all the way back to the Exodus, which this is all a signal of the Passover, right? Jesus is the Passover lamb. When God told them to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost, do you know what he told them to do it with? Hyssop, great guess. Like a sponge? No, hyssop, right? You follow along. Yes. And hyssop was used when Moses had the law and to cleanse the people, he took a hyssop branch with blood and water and sprinkled it over the law and over the people. You think it's any coincidence that, that those dudes took hyssop and gave it up to Jesus? No, because that was medicinal. It showed cleansing. So even that is a completion Again, it's just crazy when you look at all the things he completed. The first Charles was right. This word is inexhaustible. Now let's go to John 19. There's still more. John 19, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But, don't you just love conjunctions? Say it all the time. What's your function? Well, apparently to point to Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once... There came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. This is John talking about himself. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. I love that. Like John's like, I know what's up. I saw it. Why? That you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Tetelestai. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on whom they have pierced. Couple references to no bones being broken. Here's what's amazing. The Passover lamb, when they slaughtered the Passover lamb, took the blood, God gave specific instructions. The legs of the lamb are not 
to be broken. Was that was like, I just don't want to break the leg. No. That was pointing forward to a greater lamb who was going to come and sacrifice his blood and his legs would not be broken. Because see, if you know anything about Roman torture, they were great at torture. I have highlighted that. And when you're up on that cross, you try to push up on your legs so that you can breathe. But if you broke the legs, then you can't push up on that anymore. You asphyxiate and you literally are starved for air and you die. And so they do that to the two guys next to Jesus to try to get them to die. Why? Because there was a law in Deuteronomy that God said, curses anyone who hangs on a tree. Hello? Jesus is cursed by the crown of thorns hanging on a tree. But then God says, you'll still take the bodies down that same day. Do not let them go overnight. Why? Because God knew when the Romans came along, what did they love to do? They loved to leave the bodies up there. As a sign to everybody, you don't want to be like that guy. And then the birds would come and start eating at them. But the Jewish people were like, hey, we got Sabbath tomorrow. And we would rather not on our day of rest this this holy day, we'd rather not see some dead dudes. So in order to follow the law, here's what's crazy. To even follow the law, to be a sign that Jesus completed the law, he didn't stay on the cross overnight. Even that is a completion of the law. So even in his death, he's perfect. Because God is orchestrating all of this. Now this was during Passover, and so they celebrated Sabbath, if you know about Jewish calendar, from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown, because Sunday was the first day of the week. For us, it's the last day of the week, but on your calendar, it shows Sunday as first. So Saturday was the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day. And so as a part of the Ten Commandments, he said, just like I rested, you rest. That's a Sabbath day to the Lord. It's to be holy. But then later on, Jesus comes and tells us, actually, it's not because God got tired, because we get tired. And it's a reminder to us that we are not made just to work. We are made to rest, watch this, in the finished work of God. God made the world. Anybody know in how many days? Six. He made the world in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. Is it any coincidence that Jesus died on the sixth day? And on the sixth day, he said, it's finished? What's he saying? Just like God completed his work on the sixth day, I completed my work on the sixth day. Why? So that all y'all could rest. That's why Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter four, there is still a Sabbath rest. There is a rest that was coming that could only be offered from God. But this Sabbath is different than a normal Sabbath because this Sabbath, he just tells you there, was a high Sabbath. What does that mean? This was one of the seven festivals and they're called the high holy days. So there were seven festivals and they went with the, the Jewish calendar and revolved around planting and harvesting. And there are specific things. All of them are all laid out in Leviticus 23 and every single one of them point to Jesus. It's amazing. Pentecost, which happens 50 days later, that's when the inbringing was, the first fruits. Pentecost happens 50 days later after this. That's when the Holy Spirit comes, first fruits. All of it means something. But this day, this Sabbath, during Passover, you could say it like this. Think about it. A high day means it's doubly holy. It's doubly holy. It's not just holy. It's holy, holy. Is there any coincidence that Jesus didn't just die on the sixth day? He died on the double holy sixth day. Because the double holy seventh day, the day of rest, because the Passover lamb had been slain, was here. And that's Jesus. Then John points out that he was pierced. They didn't break his legs, but he was pierced. Why? Because the Old Testament said he would be. Here's what's crazy. Zechariah chapter 12. 
Literally in Zechariah, this is what's nuts when, when people can't see Jesus. Literally in Zechariah chapter 12, he's prophesying, which he's speaking the words of God. And here's what God says. They will look onto me whom they have pierced. You can go look it up. I think it's Zechariah 12.10. Don't do it now. You just write it down as a reference. So the prophet Zechariah said, they will look, notice, he didn't say they will look at him whom they have pierced. He said they will look at, he said, you will look at me whom they have pierced. So this one that they've pierced, guess what? That is God. And Zechariah said that. And then Zechariah, 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 he said, after that, will flow out a new fountain. And this fountain will forgive their sins. Is it any wonder that they pierced him? Which again, Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was punished by his wounds, by his stripes. We're healed. But when they pierced him, John says, blood and water flowed out. Now, people have tried to describe the medical reasons for this, and I'm not a doctor, although I did stay at Holiday Inn last night. Um, I, <laughs> these things just happen, all right? Some people believe, and I've heard it said, that is because literally Jesus' heart exploded. And there's, you know, a, 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 I can't even say it, but there's a sack of water around your heart, and if his heart exploded and it filled with blood, and then when they pierced it, they pierced the sack and his heart, and outflows blood and water. Again, I don't know medically if that's exactly what happened. Some doctors have said, no, no, that's not actually what happened because it would actually drain into your lungs, and that's not the... The point is not medically what's going on, although there are medical reasons for it. The point is when they pierced it, these two things flowed out, blood and water. And this is the fountain that Zechariah said would flow out. And they have huge theological meaning. See, the blood, we talked about this last week, if you were here, the blood of the Passover lamb, when the Passover lamb was slaughtered, was taken in and poured over, sprinkled over at the mercy seat, because you had the law in the Ark of the Covenant, you had the Ten Commandments, you had God, so you had God and you had the law. So there's perfection, but then you have sin that breaks it. And so the blood would be sprinkled over the mercy seat, which was mercy, so that when God looked down at the law, he didn't see an unbroken law, he saw, he saw shed blood. He saw blood of mercy that covered sin. So the fact that blood came out is theologically significant because the blood represented in the negative sense our sin, our blood is death. Like there's all these rules in the Old Testament about not eating meat with blood in it. And it's not just because God had, you know, wanted to make it weird for us to eat certain things. No, they all had symbolism. And so this blood that was shed was shed, and Hebrews picks this up as well, for the remission of sin, because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. But Hebrews says the blood of goats and bulls was never what actually took away the sin, because you can't be saved or you can't be forgiven by them. They were shadows. They were signs that were pointing forward. Because it wasn't the blood of a bull, it wasn't the blood of a goat, it was the blood of God. Only God's blood could cover the fact that we shed blood in our sins. But then water. What is it about the water? See, John goes out of his way in his gospel to highlight life. So you believe you may have life. And so most Scholars and theologians believe the, the blood in a negative sense took away death, but water symbolizes life. So in one act, we get blood and water. 
In one act, death is dealt with and life comes forth. They both flowed out. And so this water was a sign of life, which even Jesus himself said to the woman at the well. You drink this water, you'll be thirsty again. But if you believe in me, out of your heart will flow streams of living what? Water. Some scholars even take this to believe, and I, I don't know this is exactly true, but you know, I can see some of the symbolism. But we celebrate the blood when we take communion at the Lord's Supper, which again was done at Passover. So we celebrate the blood. So that's one ordinance that we celebrate. What's the other ordinance that has to do with water? Baptism. And so some people see that even in this symbolism, which I'm like, okay, maybe. Again, I don't think it's heretical, but I don't know if that's exactly what it means. But even that, I'm like, that's pretty cool. His blood was shed for us. And now water symbolizes we're washed in the water. And the Bible even uses the word water like this. I'll show you a reference in Hebrews in just a minute. So here's what John is trying to point out. First, John is trying to point out Jesus really died. Because after Jesus rose again in the first, second, and third centuries, there was two heresies that were starting to make their way around Christian circles, which honestly is kind of comforting to me because Christians make up junk all the time and it happened in the Bible. And one of the heresies was Jesus was God, but he wasn't really man. He wasn't really a, a man. He was appearing as one. He didn't really have a body. Because in Greek mindset, the body was bad. The body was wrong. So there's no way God could really have a body. And so John is writing because he wants you to know, no, he really had a body. And that body was really dead. Because when they pierced that body, out came real blood and real water. But then there was another heresy. Remember if you were here last week, there was three crosses and Jesus was crucified in the middle of those three crosses. And I told you on either side of the road is the ditch. So there's two opposite errors. Well, the same way, not just the opposite errors of the gospel, but opposite errors of Jesus. People think, oh, he was all God, but not man. But then the other opposite error would be, no, he was man, but not God. And here's what's crazy. See, if he was God, but not man, then he didn't really die. But if he was man and not God, he didn't really raise again. Because if he's man, I don't know if you know this, but no men get raised again. Or women, right? Nobody. You dead, you dead. 100% of people die. It's the only stat you can count on. As they say, that and paying taxes. Which that's got to happen by April 18th. Which, interestingly enough, even the word to die. Some people believe a different version of this word was used to say a receipt had been paid in full. So Jesus had to have a real body because he really had to be nailed to a cross. He really had to be flogged. He really had to be pierced in order to pay, in order to say it was finished. So the death of Jesus highlights the humanity of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus highlights the divinity of Jesus. Do you see that? He was both God and man. He was full of both. He was both grace and truth, full of both. And John wants you to know on one level, that's why I'm pointing this out, but on the other level, he's saying, but this blood pays for your death and this water gives you life. Now let's go on the last part of John. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came back or came and took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, you remember back in John chapter three, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. So this was the original Nick at night. <laughs> that joke never gets old to me, all right? Nick came at night, if you didn't get it the first time, all right? 
Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, because they didn't have embalming practices like we have today, so they had to use a lot of fragrance for a dead body. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And don't just think like small garden, think like plantation, almost like a hill where there would have been a bunch of olive trees almost. And in the garden, a new tomb, which there was a lot of tombs there, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Here's, (laughs) we've talked about the significance of Jesus saying it is finished. We talked about the significance of blood and water. And I told you last week about the place where Jesus died and why I think it is where it is. But I want you to see two guys that previously hadn't believed in Jesus, but they were curious, they were wondering. See, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, the other gospel tells us, and he was also a part of the Sanhedrin. He was in the political ruling class. So was Nicodemus. Both of these guys were powerful players in Jewish circles. And the Jewish people just said they wanted Jesus crucified because he claimed to be the son of God. So they were, crucify him, crucify him, jeering at him, mocking him. But after the death of Jesus, you got two powerful political Jewish players who defy the actions of their people, and they are now actually caring for the body of Jesus. I don't want you to miss that. That's no small thing. And they weren't just doing it because of the the rule in Deuteronomy that a body can't stay on the cross because a Jewish person couldn't touch a dead body. They would be unclean for seven days. So they would have missed out on the rest of all the Passover celebration. They would have missed out on Sabbath the next day. It is no small thing that these two powerful, powerful Jewish people Take his dead body and put it in a tomb. Wrap him up, linen, spices. This would not have been something that these two people would do. But why did they do it? Because it's finished. In fact, if you're taking notes, here's my main point this week. This is what I want you to see. It is finished, so we don't have to be fearful. It is finished, so we don't have to be fearful. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, John tells us, he's still a little fearful. He's still a little fearful of the Jewish people and what's about to happen to him. But see, a lot of, a lot of us think that courage like, is mutually exclusive with fear. Like if we have fear, we can't have courage. No, you know what courage is? Courage is being afraid but doing it anyway. What was it that made these two guys courageous? What was it that led these two guys, Nick at night, even Nicodemus? He was so concerned about being seen with Jesus during the daytime, the boy came at night. But now here here he is before night. See, John tells us it was the day of preparation for the Passover. So Passover started at sundown on Friday So this is before sundown, so it's still daylight. And now Nicodemus moves from darkness to light. You see that? Nicodemus just moved from death to life. Why? Because it's finished. It's finished. Joseph of Arimathea moved from fear to faith because it was finished. 
In fact, here's the verse in Hebrew I want to show you. Look at how Hebrews, and again, if you want to understand all the Jewish symbolism, read the book of Hebrews. It'll tell you. It'll show you all these connections. That's why it was written. That's why it's called Hebrews, because the Jewish people are Hebrews. And we make weird jokes about like Hebrews as some kind of like God likes coffee, you know, because he brews. No. As Christians, can we just quit that corny stuff? And the corny t-shirts and all that, like not gold's gym, God's gym, you know, and Jesus being pierced. Listen, uh, forget all that. Hebrews points to these realities and look at what Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 22 say. Therefore, anytime you see the word therefore, what's it therefore? It's talking about everything that he's talked about. Look at this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now check this out. By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. If you were here last week, we talked about how when Jesus died, he gave up his last breath. It went and what did it do to the curtain that separated the temple and the holy of holies? What did it do? Tore it from top to bottom. What did that? His blood. So when he was crucified, the power of it is finished sent shockwaves, shook the earth, split the rock, dead people came out of life, and it split the curtain. And Hebrews here is telling you like, where did you get that last week? Right here. Through the curtain that is his flesh. Now watch this. Verse 21. If that were not enough, which is why I love conjunctions. And, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure what? Did you see it? Blood and water. How long do I have to do this? Blood and water, curtain, flesh, Passover lamb, blood. The blood cleanses us. Now we're washed with pure water. The water doesn't just signify life. It also signifies the spirit. Because we're made alive by the spirit of God. Why? Because the blood of Christ finished the work. So here's what I'm saying to you. If everything is finished, then why are we so afraid? See, what made these two dudes faith-filled and no longer fear-filled was the finished work of Jesus. And if you and I can see it, if we can see that tetelestai, it's done, it's finished, we'll have confidence, we'll have faith, We'll move forward in full assurance of faith. And here's what I'm trying to get you to see. We will complete our telos, the work that God gave us to do. Why? Because now we're empowered by the one who finished his work. Do you understand? You have the spirit of the one who finished his work living in you. So if you have the spirit of the one who said it is finished, now you have the power of the spirit of the one who said it is finished in you to finish the work God has called you to do. So why are you so afraid? This is why I say this all the time. I don't get it when Christians freak out every four years in a presidential election. As if some president is going to stop the plan of God. As if some other country is going to stop the plan of God. Do you understand that when Christians got this message, they went fearlessly into all the world with the gospel message? And said things like, if I die, then I live. Here's what I don't get about Christians. You realize death is an upgrade, don't you? Why are you so afraid of it? Like, why are you so afraid of getting old and dying? I told you last week, it's a seamless transition for us if we're in Christ. We'll go from death. Life to life, there is no death. 
Why? Because it's finished. Let me leave you with the last quote. I don't have this one on the screen because it's just too long. And it's by a second British preacher named Charles, but this guy named Charles Spurgeon, which if you know anything about him, you understand he likes long quotes. Listen to what he said. What a grand utterance is to tell us die. Now we are safe for salvation is complete. The debt was now to the last farthing. This is old English. All discharged. The atonement and propitiation were made once and for all and forever by the one offering made in Jesus' body on the tree. There was a cup. Hell was in it. The Savior drank it. Not a sip and then a pause. Not a drought and then a ceasing. He drank it till there was not a dreg left for any of his people. The great ten throng whipped of the law was worn out upon his back. There is no lash left with which to smite one for whom Jesus died. The great candidate of God's justice has exhausted all its ammunition. There is nothing left to be hurled against the child of God. Beloved, do you believe these great benefits are yours in Christ? Sheath is thy sword, O justice. Silence is the thunder, O law. There remains nothing now of all the griefs and pains and agonies which chosen sinners ought to have suffered for their sins, for Christ has endured all for his own beloved, and it is finished. Christ has paid the debt which all the torments of eternity could not have paid. Once again, when he said, it is finished, Jesus had totally destroyed the power of Satan, of sin and death. The champion accepted the challenge to do battle for our Lord's redemption against all our foes. He met sin, horrible, terrible, all but omnipotent sin nailed him to the cross. But in that deed, Christ nailed sin also to the tree. There they both did hang together, sin and sin's destroyer. Sin destroyed Christ, and by that destruction, Christ destroyed sin. It is fearful. We don't have to be afraid. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this one man, for one God who lived one perfect life and he died on one day but before he did, he uttered one word to tell us die. It's finished. It's complete. And now we don't have to be afraid. Our best day before Christ is not better than our worst day after Christ because our greatest enemy has been dealt with, and that's death. Because death is the great equalizer. Comes for us all. No matter how rich we are, no matter if we're poor, no matter what our skin color is, no matter what our ethnicity is, no matter what our gender is, we all die. But because Jesus died, in our place for our sins and he completed the work. We don't have to be fearful anymore because our sin has been paid by the blood of Christ and through the washing of the water of the word and the spirit of God, we're made alive and we can live and we will live forevermore. And so God, I pray for those today who maybe have not understood this message of the gospel that it is finished. Everything has been paid for. It's been completed. And if they will just simply trust in Christ, he will say to the Father on their behalf, it's paid for, it's finished. And they'll be saved. No one looking around or talking here as we close, as we wrap this week up. I hope you understand the implication of this one word. That if you'll believe it, 
you'll have life. And so today, if you want Jesus to take your sin, forgive it through the blood that he shed and give you life, water, you can be saved. So if that's you and you wanna pray and trust Christ, you can pray with me. You don't have to do this out loud. You're just praying to God. And it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me. You sent Jesus in my place for my sin. He completed the work. And he paid my debt. So I ask you to forgive me because of Christ. I ask you to save me. Give me life. Thank you for loving me. Again, nobody looking around or talking. If you just prayed to trust Christ, you're in one of our physical locations. You just simply raise your hand so we can see that. We got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. Within those of us, I say this every week, that have trusted Christ, I hope like we prayed at the beginning, that this message, this Easter, would remind you of the suffering that God went through to save you. He loved you that much. And if it's finished, then you can rest. See, this word, it is finished, was written in what's called the perfect tense. And the perfect tense refers to a past action that produces a present day effect. See, the past action was done. It's finished on the cross. But it's designed to produce a present day effect in your life right now. And that present day effect is to give you confidence, to give you hope in a future to give you faith. This is why Paul says to Timothy, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. So I don't know what you're afraid of. I don't know what is robbing you. Like the thief on the cross, what's stealing from you. But I pray that this Easter you would look at the cross and you'd remind it, since it is finished, I don't have to fear. Because my greatest enemy, death, hell in the grave has been defeated so I can trust God and move forward in full assurance of faith approach God boldly Hebrews says approach the throne of grace boldly because the blood of Christ has forgiven your sins so maybe what's been robbing you is Satan keeps lying to you that God still is judging you for your sin and you can say no it was paid for once and for all the blood of Christ tore through the curtain in his flesh. Now, because of that, I can have faith, full assurance, confidence, because it's finished. I don't have to fear. Father, we pray that you would produce this perfect in us. You would produce this present-day effect from the past action of Jesus saying, it's finished. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, church.